This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your smartphone, tablet, or desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Warp 5, our dedicated Enterprise show. I'm your host, Norman Lau, and thank you for joining us in the conference room aboard the NX-01. Yep, that's right. Dr. Flox has led us out of the decon chamber for this episode because I wanted to do this episode in the very room where this one particular character helped shape the future of the Federation. And I can go into this huge monologue about who this is and why we're talking about him, but I think I can just sum up how awesome this show is going to be with just one name. And that's Shran. That's right, everyone. I can hear the applause going off in everyone's head right now. We're talking about Shran, that Endorian like no other. So let's get into it. So I'm more surprised that we have a conference room. We have a conference room, Norm? Yeah. I mean, isn't this great? I mean, like Flox has... You know, he's well, they've been in this uh, the decon chamber and we're almost out of gel. And I think I'm just going to let them stretch their legs for a little bit because there is a whole gorgeous ship that they have to explore. And six or seven episodes locked in the decon chamber since the beginning of the year. Well, let's get let's it's like this. I've been here so long. I just walk out stumbling. Everything is a white glare. I'm just like, where am I? I'm on a ship. What? What am I doing? Well, ladies and gentlemen, as you can see, we have Will Nguyen, our content coordinator for Trek FM, with us. And he is truly enduring an Endorian winter right now. So I actually asked Flox personally to let us out so we can go to some warmer parts of the ship. But it actually, I'm, I'm really glad that Will was able to make it with it to uh, the show tonight because there is a severe weather situation happening uh, where he lives. So... Everyone think good, warm thoughts for Will, and hopefully um, the, the snow will let up for him pretty soon, and hopefully he won't get flooded out of his basement because thaws are a terrible thing. This is why Endorians live underground. I totally understand why they live underground now. And having endured pretty much four major storms in as many weeks, I totally understand why Endorians live underground with their warm cities. They, they're close to the geothermal energy. You know, they don't have to deal with plows or shoveling. I mean, the Andorians have got it figured out. We just got to worry about those those weevils, you know, so. I mean, the, like the, the, the. Those ice worms. The heat maggots. Yeah. The, the ones that. Yeah. The ones that go through the. Oh, man. Right. I mean, they don't even have like normal 
regular pests, right? Or like they don't have like normal crickets. They have they like have ice bowls. crickets that will <laughs> kill you, right? If you just are in the wrong place. And that is the thin ice. So ladies and gentlemen, don't push Will through the thin ice. It's true. That's a warning. All right. So Shran is one of the most beloved characters in Enterprise. I don't think that that's a surprise to anybody, if not the most, because... He's played by the Star Trek Everywhere Man, the living legend for Star Trek that is Jeffrey Combs. And Jeffrey Combs is just a force of nature that pretty much elevates any episode in any series that he's on in Star Trek. Now, I know, Will, you're a big Niners fan, so I know that uh, he played Wayun, um, the Vorta in Deep Space Nine. And he played Brunt as well. That's right. Tell us a little bit about why you liked him in that role because again he's it's a obviously a different take on shran it's 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 a little laid back and he's a little bit more manipulative but it's still very essentially jeffrey combs because you there is that ulterior motive factor that always works in shran's favor and gosh way had that in spades right absolutely i think for me jeffrey combs in whatever role he has he has a presence it's a singular presence so for with with Yoon, it's a presence of of a diplomat slash a, a, a court courtier or someone that would be in a palace that would be consumed with palace intrigue. He's an ambassador. Uh, he is a translator. He is someone that is the carrot in how the Dominion deals with other races, to Jem'Hadar being the stick. So you're not sure if what he's telling you is 100% true, but you're also not sure if what he's telling you is 100% false. And those are the best lies, the lies that have an ounce of truth in them. And, you know, there's just so much texture into how he brings that character to life. Same with Brunt of the FCA, that Ferengi, you know, he brings his own spin to the Ferengi. And that says a lot because DS9 has the most famous Ferengi in Quark. So to be able to come in and give such a unique spin to a different Ferengi character the brunt who's clearly antagonistic quark that speaks volumes to to jeffrey combs bringing that unique presence and obviously shran he's positively electrifying in almost all of the scenes that he's on and i think we'll get into it that there's a particular Mm -hmm. line norm that he did really well that we'll get into it but every time he's on that scene he's just crackling with energy and it really plays off well with archer for the most part archer is calm and collected and he plays really well off of Sharan. Yeah, there's a nice, I mean, literally hot and cold going on there. Funny enough, it's because the hot comes from the cold character, the Andorian character. And speaking of Andorians, if if our listeners want to go back into the Warp 5 catalog and really get a great episode that covers Andorians in general, specifically episode 25, Christopher Jones and Tyler Johnson discuss the Andorians incredibly at length uh, the history of the Andorians in Star Trek why everything to them seems to be related to the color blue from their skin to the decorative interiors of their ships their ale their blood very very uh, the through line in their design is is pretty uh, monochromatic so but they they talk about it really um, in a way where you get to understand kind of like the motivations of the Andorian species, uh, what they mean to Star Trek, Star Trek history, and obviously their first appearance in the original series episode, Journey to Babel, which is um, technically a sequel, but 
uh, we prequelize it here in Enterprise with an episode Babel in the fourth season, which we'll get to in a little bit later. But, Will, you're right. Shran was so, he's just so volatile and he's so explosive. And Jeffrey Combs isn't a, he's not a large man. He's a, he's, you know, he's not a big dude. But every single ounce of him seems to explode on screen with Shran. And that's why you and I and Tommy, and I'm sorry, Tommy, you weren't able to make it for this episode. We all agreed that Shran definitely deserved his own episode, his own focus, because really a lot of what he did earlier on in seasons one and two were kind of like this weird happenstance and helped forge this relationship with Archer which eventually led, for all intents and purposes, to the United Federation of Planets. And it goes all the way back to season one um, with Shadows and Pajem and the Andorian incident. So let's kind of get into Shran and how much of the influence that he had over the series in really only 10 episodes. So for our listeners out there, here are the 10 episodes that Shran was in at least on screen, because he was mentioned in other episodes. In season one, you had the Andorian incident and Shadows of Pajem. In season two, only one episode, Ceasefire. In season three, Proving Ground, which I think is probably one of his best episodes, and Zero Hour, which was the finale of season three. And then season four, you had this kind of this great arc to his character that eventually would have led to what Manny Cotto admitted to Shran's involvement in season five with the potential of him becoming a permanent cast member. And you had Kirshara, which was at the end of the, uh, the Vulcan arc. And then you had the Babel arc, which was Babel one United and the Anar. And then you see Shran finally, and these are the voyages, but not in really like a giant arc there. So in season one, in the Andorian incident in shadows of Pajem, we really see, his first impression. Well, when you saw Shran for the first time, when he busted through the doors of the monastery and the Andorian incident, what was your first reaction to seeing Jeffrey Combs? Did you recognize him at first? And then seeing kind of like these really diminutive and angry and aggressive Adorians. I think Jeffrey Combs has a very distinct profile. I think you could even tell when he's underneath Ferengi makeup, which is more concealing. So with Andorian makeup, you can definitely tell, at least for me, I could definitely tell it was Jeffrey Combs. For me, I think it was supposed to be this big reveal, and obviously it was for the fans, but I think for a second there, I'm like, are those really Andorians? Or are they, I mean, it's in the episode, I mean, it's an episode name. I mean, to be fair, it's called Andorian Instant, but I think for a lot of, for a lot of fans that going, you know, if they go back to Journey to Babel, and even how the Andorians were portrayed in that brief scene, in TNG, it was such a dramatic reimagination, and it's such a great reimagination because they've updated the look of of Andorians, but it's still very recognizable from the antenna to the to the makeup to the hair. The antenna are moving around, I believe, in an RC or remote controlled fashion. The old antennas were literally just painted over tin material, and I, and I think Larry Nemechek previously had mentioned that in regards to the Andorran instant when he found out whether when he found out that this episode was being made he was on pins and needles because he just thought that they were going to mess it up that they were portrayed so uh, 
jokingly in that TNG episode, he wasn't sure if, and a lot of other longtime fans weren't sure if the Enterprise reinterpretation would do it justice. And if it was silly and if it wasn't well-received by the fans, then it'd be very easy for the studios or the writers to say, well, we tried bringing in TOS elements. We tried bringing in Dorian elements. It didn't work, so we'll never go go back to that. So I think for for me when I saw that, it was also there was a moment of I, I couldn't really believe, like, is that really Endorians? Because everything I've seen of them before has been very, it, it has felt very dated. And because it's never been mentioned ever uh, beyond TOS and select instances in, you know, the Voyage Home and in TNG, you really don't hear about the Endorians. So when you see them finally again in a reimagined fashion, you kind of have to do a double take. Like, oh, is that really them? It You know, they, but clearly they are. And... They've done such a terrific job of of updating it and really making it believable. Well, yeah, and it's the the same way that they handled the Vulcans. You know, they had to be really careful about any type of retconning with the history of the Andorians because we up up to now in the timeline, the Andorians are brand new. But to the fans' understanding of all of the lore and and their exposure to the Andorians from Journey to Babel in the original series and some of the very minute appearances that you saw on screen. I remember seeing an Andorian officer during Spock's trial at the end of the voyage home, or actually the entire cruise trial. And Spock is Spock was part of that when he walked out of uh, into the procession. Isn't there a Katian too? I believe, yeah the 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 cat the cat people officer Mres's. Species. I was like, this mm-hmm. is cool. Obviously, you can only see them once. Right. The budget only requires them to be there once. But and, and there was, you know, there was the Andorian officer there. So I think when you see like those little moments, they are so cherished because that's all of that particular race you get to cling on to as a memory and just a snippet on on screen. So I think the the risk is making sure that what you see on screen with these Andorians uh, in this particular episode, this is your first chance to make a long lasting impression. And I think it was really smart for them to get Jeffrey Combs in there because he's so well loved by the fans that it instantly gives Shran this gravitas so that fans will pay attention more to the character rather than any, minute issue that they may have with the way that the Andorians are costumed or their technology or their mannerisms or their antennae, which I think worked perfectly, but I'm a little biased towards Enterprise. So getting an actor that people really can get behind and support was pretty good strategy, don't you think? Because there's a lot that they can forgive because it is Jeffrey Combs. Would you agree? I would agree. I would also say that you could look at it from the way that you're you're presenting in terms of potentially hedging uh, their new reinterpretation of the Andorians. I think it may be just a sim- it might be a simpler answer. It might be just because Jeffrey Combs is such a good character actor and that he's able to play such a diverse range of supporting characters, but at the same time being able to infuse it with that level of presence but not necessarily the same type of presence. You know, Shran is obviously a different character than Wayun. Wayun is obviously a different character than Brunt. And there's going to be 
you're going you're not going to want fans to have the same expectations of you playing the same type of character just for a different race and i think it was useful for the studio to to bring in that big name i i, I can see that but i think also they just wanted him because he was such a good character actor and they knew that they needed a very intelligent and forceful foil to Archer, especially in the Enduring Incident. That's the one really incredibly smart move on the on the part of the casting director because Jeffrey Combs, when you take a look at the way he acts, he brings so much passion to his roles. And not just a bombastic passion and over-the-top passion. There's a great level of subtlety that he brings into his emotional range is when he acts. And it's a really nice counterpoint to a lot of the other actors who play Starfleet officers, especially someone like Scott Bakula, who has to act with a certain level of reserve because he is humanity's representation out into deep space, and he has to hold this type of diplomatic poise. But we really get to understand the Andorian's point of view from the get-go because Shran is very, just moves forward. But he moves forward with purpose. And he moves forward with a really interesting code of honor because in the Andorian incident, he knows that he's right. And he's so unbelievably frustrated that he can't prove it. He's so close, he knows it. And yet it's this human, this pink skin, that gives him the benefit of the doubt and by one particular happenstance proves him right. And I love the scene at the end where you just see it in his face, this exoneration of all of these beliefs. And he knows that all of his efforts weren't squandered. And he really put himself and his crew, the Kamari, his ship, all of that at risk. And it paid off. He actually was right about the Vulcan listening station. And that's a really neat thing to see because you have the Vulcans who are so cold and so calculating. You have the Andorians who are so fiery and so passionate and they're they're the beginning of this entire superstructure that will become this the foundation for the United Federation of Planets and it starts here and it's just really neat to see you don't see it obviously when you were during the original viewing when you're just seeing it episode to episode to episode but now that we have the uh, the luxury of looking back at it from season to season it's a really neat start to this entire storyline that starts the Federation. But we talked about this a little bit well earlier, the, this Andorian ideal of honor. And I'm not sure if you were able to finish up your thought on that. So what were you thinking of when we discussed this a little bit offline before the show? You know, what, what I was saying was up until Enterprise, the only really interpretation of honor that you saw on screen was the Klingon definition of honor. And, even with that definition of honor, it was often two things. It was either what the Klingons themselves said honor was and what Worf, the most prominent Klingon that we saw on screen, what we what he thought honor was. And oftentimes the Klingon portrayal of honor was very self-serving. It was, it was honor only in the sense of whether the victory could claim honor after the fact, that victory was paramount over any other concern. It really gave credence to the idea that although Klingons might talk a big game about honor, that their actions themselves are clearly oftentimes far less honorable. 
And Worf was, you know, this ideal Klingon outsider raised by human parents, Mm -hmm. but had this, you know, romanticized, idealized ideal of honor. And his actions were incredibly honorable, sometimes being so honorable that he would bring shame upon his own family and himself in order to be faithful to this idealized, romanticized form of honor. And I think before Enterprise, that's really all you saw. But with Shran, you saw the formation of a personal relationship with Archer that was going to be the bedrock for everything else that would develop, the Coalition of Planets, the UFP, everything. And the reason why that friendship worked was he was bound by what he felt to be a debt that he owed Archer because Archer was right and he helped him prove that the Vulcans were lying. And we were talking about it on the other side of the room. Um, the in terms other of, side of the room. That's right. He was talking. It's reminiscent of Chewbacca's blood oath or, uh, or or life debt to Han Solo. That's the reason why he's so loyal to Han and later on, he later lo- so loyal to Han's family and Leia and the twins and all of that because they're so indebted to him. And Shran obviously doesn't go to that type of level per se, but in the very next episode, I believe it's Shadows of Pergem, mm-hmm. he says he couldn't sleep. He couldn't sleep knowing that he owed Archer something. So <laughs> I he, love that. It's not even for the sake of Archer. It's more for, it's for the sake of myself. I can't live with myself knowing that I am in your debt somehow, pink skin. So it's it's this interesting dynamic of, and we don't know, and to be fair, we don't know if this definition is something that's endemic to all of Andorian culture or it's particular to Shran and his interpretation of it. It could be a type of wharf idealized type of honor. But I think it's very interesting, you know, if he didn't feel obligated to Archer in any way, you know, the whole this whole relationship wouldn't have happened and you might not have hap- you might not have had the coalition of planets and everything else that spun out from that. Well, it may be also indicative of kind of like the military code of the Imperial Guard, because that's something that was introduced to fans, both of Star Trek and in uh, for Enterprise, because I don't believe that this particular nomenclature for the wing of the military was ever as identified as it was in Enterprise. It's the Imperial Guard. And he really does mention that all the time. I'm of the Imperial Guard. The Imperial Guard does this. You need the support of the Imperial Guard. The Imperial Guard doesn't surrender. It's very Star Warsy, right? You're just thinking red-robed, crimson guardsmen guarding the Emperor, right? The Imperial Guard. It's it, For me, it's very... It's very un-Star Trek, but in a good way, right? It's it just evocative of a completely different society. So it's possible that the training of the Imperial Guard kind of fosters this code of conduct, this, you know, um, death before dishonor type of mentality, because that's how that's how he operates throughout the course of every episode that we see him in. Interestingly enough, though, I'm not sure if we see that in all of his officers. I think we do see it in Talus, you know, his second in command and eventually, you know, the his love interest later on in the series. But the other officers, like, say, in the Endoria incident in Shadow of Pajem, maybe it's just because Shran is so intense about it that his other officers don't just kind of fall back to the wayside, don't really lead by that example. So, But it's interesting that you you brought friendship in early because 
it is a friendship that's kind of growing over time, definitely because Fran believes that he has a debt to repay. But I see this more of a, kind of an uneasy alliance, you know, where there obviously are are feelings that are being bridged, you know, and, and Shran, <laughs> I do love it when he says, I can't sleep because I have to clear this debt that I owe you. But it's, it's more along the lines of a soldier doing another soldier a solid, you know, it's like you came in Archer and you did this great thing for me. I'm a soldier. I have this code of conduct and this, this obligation to honor. I'm going to try and do you, you know, this favor later on. And we'd see this in, the next episode that we see Shran in, in Ceasefire, where the, the Andorians and the Vulcans are in battle over a planet. The Andorians call it Waitan, the Vulcans call it Pan Mokar. And Shran is involved. They need Archer as a mediator because Saval is involved. And I believe that if it wasn't for this relationship with Archer and Shran, these negotiations would have failed before they begin, or they began. So... This is one of those examples of this debt being repaid over time. Um, what did you think about this episode? And, and obviously, do you believe that it, it just kind of like furthered and fostered along this relationship now having a Vulcan involved, especially at Saval's level? I just absolutely love this episode because it's, it encapsulates so much of what's at play with Shran and Archer's relationship. Uh, when... Admiral Force is telling Archer to be diverged to this planet. He essentially said, this is the first time the Vulcans have asked us to do anything. So this is a big deal for humans. This is a big deal for Starfleet. And Archer, when he's telling Trip, he's explaining to them why they need to do this mission. They're explorers, not diplomats. Forrest's comment to Archer saying, you're the closest thing we have to an ambassador out there, mm-hmm. is so powerful because... That's so true. Archer's statement to Trip saying, this is the building blocks to us potentially joining a community of planets, a larger community. And, you know, those are the definitive markers of of the writers and producers laying the foundations towards, oh, this is foreshadowing something bigger down the road. And you could begin to see how humanity, how Earth, how Starfleet plays that role. And... I love it because it, it really puts the relationship front and center, but also puts the relationship between Andoria, Earth, and Vulcan on the center stage too. Literally, the Enterprise, NX-01, is in between both of them. Right. And you could just see that's the beginning, right? The beginning is not necessarily we're all friends, but it's we hate you the least, human. <laughs> Hey, Pink Skin, we hate you the least. We don't like any of you, but we can at least deal with you. It's almost like a situation where there are you know, three friends squabbling. You just tell, can you tell so-and-so that I told, that I said this? And the other person clearly hearing the other person will say, well, can you tell so-and-so that I said this? And the other person's literally in between that, you know, they have to play the mediator because they're the only person that the other side is willing to talk to. And, it's a very interesting and I think a very successful take on how humanity becomes so instrumental as that linchpin to the future Federation. You know, it's it's interesting that um, that Shran continually calls Archer Pinkskin because, you know, for all intents and purposes, that's kind of like a racist statement. 
It's like saying Spoonhead or Cardi or all sorts of stuff. Absolutely. Your and Admiral Pointy Ears. Admiral Pointy Ears. You know, it, that's absolutely true. There there will be a time when that changes, but for the most part, in, in seasons one through four, when he uses that word, it's still derogatory, you know, and you don't really address a friend that way, especially earlier on in your friendship when you're trying to, you know, you're trying to foster genuine, honest and respectful feelings because that's it's it's like an insult. And I think it's it starts off, obviously, as a, a bigger insult because, you know, they are they're locking horns in terms of their ultimate goals. But it's weird how it turns to almost a, in a phrase of affection, even though it is a derogatory word. And he will change later on. We'll get into that. But it's just it's funny because you mentioned it. I've mentioned it. And it's it's just this ubiquitous word for humanity but it's still and it's funny in star trek it's still a negative word Uh, it's a racial connotation we can forgive that because it's part of science fiction you know because we've had this you know we've had uh discussions about um the fairness and racism and sexism in, in shows like star trek and science fiction and and it's just it's just one of those throwaway words but it's kind of like when you think about it like like cardi no, you're right. And I think I think a lot of people found in Star Trek Six when they invited the Klingons over for dinner and they said, Look who's coming to dinner. Did you see the you know, did you see the way they eat? A lot of people were turned off by Chekhov and Uhura's pretty racist comments towards the Klingons. And there's an argument to be made that were these characters, did they always harbor these regressive views? You would think that in the future they'd be more enlightened. And there are other instances in Deep Space Nine in the episode Empok Nor when they're sending over uh, the engineering team, the security team, and you know they're they're calling the Cardassians there spoonheads and cardies. O'Brien has used that term, and you know I mean if we're, we're including the original series, McCoy, you know calls Spock, you know a pointier hobgoblin is that in the new movie or in the original series i get the two mixed up sometimes yeah probably i don't remember specifically but he did i mean so many times where it's like if you know your blood pressure is you know far beyond normal if you call that green stuff inside your body blood oh the, yeah, the green <laughs> blooded know? stuff no absolutely and it is it is you know racially charged racist comments and i like the fact that it's there because it shows that even though in the future so much so many things are better that we still have these impulses, that we still have these less than noble instincts and habits that, you know, we should know better, but are still there. I think it's something that could have been addressed even more um, poignantly in terms of more directly in terms of saying, you know, that's pretty offensive. That's pretty racist for you to say those things um, as opposed to just kind of being brushed off or ignored. But I think absolutely it brings up the points that, even in the future, we may have we may have gotten rid of racism within humanity, but how we deal with other races can be completely uh, could completely negate the progress we've made for our species in how we regard ourselves. And I think you can you begin to see some of that at the end of season four with Terra Prime and demons and the xenophobia that's present um, with humanity. But I think it's something that it's an important reminder that even in the future with everything being ostensibly better, 
that there's still these demons or these less than noble instincts that we still have to fight. I just find it funny that he continues to call a race that he just met this word and he doesn't really hate humans. You know, he's probably, you know, at best annoyed by them and irritated by them and, you know, has a little bit of a fondness for Archer. But you never really hear the Andorians, you know, kind of like spout out these racially charged words to Vulcans. They don't, I never heard them call the Vulcans a derogatory slang. It's just, it's just a tone that they take when they're like, Vulcans, you know. But I, I would think that the writers would have, I don't know, maybe invented something for the Andorians, some really just just racially charged word for Vulcans. It's something that they would just like spout out in like a, in the heat of the moment or something like that. When Schrantz pointing his finger at Saval during these peace negotiations during ceasefire. But no one is labeling Shran as being a diplomat by any stretch of the imagination. Cause that's not who he is. What he is though, is something that I agree with you will on in, in terms of, of trying to break out different facets of Shran's character. And he's a Patriot. I think, you know, first and foremost, he is a patriot for Andoria. But patriotism sometimes has sometimes some dubious reasoning behind it, ulterior motives behind the patriotism, because what he does, he does for his planet. What he does, he does for his people. But in a couple of the episodes that we're going to talk about, especially in Proving Ground in season three, he comes off as a patriot, he comes off as an ally, but at the end of the episode, he does something that is really sly and self-serving. Is that patriotism? He does believe so. But to Archer, it is something that he couldn't have thrust a knife in Archer's back deeper in this episode. And it's something that I always thought placed their relationship at huge risk. So in Proving Ground, this is when Shran has the opportunity to forge better relationships with Archer and Starfleet. There's a great scene that I'd like to read a particular quote from between Archer and Shran in, in Archer's captain's quarters around the, his dinner table. And Archer asked Shran, how did you get picked for this assignment? And Shran responded, I volunteered. It made sense. I've had, had the greatest amount of contact with pink, with humans. And the last time we met, you helped my people avert a war. I don't like unpaid debts. Archer responds, we keep doing each other favors. And then Shran holds up his shot glass of Endorian ale and says, isn't that how alliances are born? And when I saw this for the first time, I'm like, yes, this is it. This is the beginning of the Federation. And then Shran puts that at risk because he is not serving the interests of this alliance. He's serving the interests of the Imperial Guard and Endoria. I don't think I'm far off base there, Will. What do you think? Absolutely. And this episode is great because it really shows how Shran and Archer are, in a lot of ways, they're the same person, right? Archer is in the expanse to do what must be done to save humanity, to save Earth. He is willing to torture people. He's willing to, you know, strand a ship and its complement it's crew complement without uh, warp drive. He's willing to do anything. He's willing to cross those boundaries. And in the same way, Shran is under orders to do the same thing. He needs to secure the Zindi weapon for Andoria in order to defend 
the Andorians against the Vulcans, against a threat that they view as legitimate. They are both operating from they're both operating from a place of patriotism, love for their people, the safety of their people, and it's this it's where these two desires come into conflict. It's where these two uh, driven protagonists are coming into conflict with each other and in a lot of ways resolving that conflict resolving that tension is probably in my own head canon that is the secret key towards making the united federation of planets work because at some point the individual member planets the individual species that make up the federation are going to have to be able to put aside the needs of their own planet and put the needs of the many mm-hmm. over their own provincial, territorial, or uh, local, per, you know, local um, needs. The needs aside of the, few for the and greater the good. Needs of the one. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I think that is such a unique dynamic that you see right here is that essentially they're not bad people. Shran and Archer are both doing something they believe to be right. And even Shran is kind of ambivalent about it too. He's torn. Mm-hmm. And how does that resolve itself? And you see it resolve itself in the way that you would expect it to be um, in terms of Shran trying to fulfill his orders, Archer understandably being very angry. Um, but you see that the road to the Federation isn't easy. It's not going to be resolved with a speech it's not going to be resolved necessarily by just trying to be better. You're going to have to put in that sacrifice, those hard choices. It's not just going to be a result of just wanting it to, to happen. You know, just like theme song, right? It's, it's a long road getting from there to here, right? And you're going to need to get past all that mistrust, all that suspicion, all that built in, all those built in barriers. And how the Federation works is at some point they're going to have to answer the question of does my loyalty to my planet, does that supersede my loyalty to this greater, this this concept of a community of planets, community of peoples coming together? And it's not going to be easy. And this is the first conflict. This is the first test. And in a lot of ways, it, it works out the way it works out in a very pessimistic way, but in the end, it also works out in a very optimistic way. Well, I, you know what I loved in this episode is I loved it when Shran had to report into his superior officer and describe the situation, but he did so with such disdain for what he had to do because he knows that as a patriot and as a member and a leader of the Imperial Guard, as a captain of the Kamari, he has all of these responsibilities on him for his people and his planet, especially with their personal struggles and their war against the Vulcans and the Vulcan High Command. But it's his personal honor that's at stake. He flat out just lied to Archer, and I don't think he wanted to do that personally. You know, not professionally. Professionally, he had to uphold his his orders and his code of contact to the Imperial Guard. But it's kind of like what Archer's going through in season three with the Zindi Shran in this sliver of an example, he has to, he has to come to terms with putting aside his personal desires to fulfill his mission. And he's putting that his honor, his personal honor 
off the table. He's taking that and just risking his integrity versus following orders. And that's, we were, you know, we'll, we discussed this uh, in Archer part two, uh, which was, we just, you know, talked about in the previous episode. And I don't see this any different for Shran, especially this particular example, because it's not his idea. It's, it's the order of his superiors. And I don't think that's any different than what Archer's doing. So maybe, maybe this is where he and Archer are actually seeing more similarities in themselves than differences, you know, because they do want to work together. They do want to be able to share technology and share support. And it's safe. To, it's safer to travel in numbers. It's better to have allies than enemies. But we both have our orders to fulfill. We both have to maintain the patriotism towards our respective governments. And this is where it's going to tear us apart, possibly. Obviously, that wasn't the case because the Federation was born. But it's funny how this coalition of trust was really founded on this quicksand of distrust and paranoia. But again, these are the eggs that eventually make the omelet. You got to break them and have to do so. So so that's what I loved about this particular episode. I think this is probably one of the best Shran episodes because you really get to see Shran struggle with what he believes is right versus what he has to do as an obligation as an officer. Now, in Zero Hour, the season finale of season three, you don't really see as much of that, but you do see what I like to call kind of like the Han moment when Han comes back and saves Luke in the Death Star trench run because you're right, he left that situation with the Zindi sphere and he's like, I know what I'm doing. You know, and Han took his his uh, his reward and it's the debt that he feels that he has to repay to Luke that forces him You're to all come clear, back. kid. Now let's blow this thing and go home, right? <laughs> and that was that the That was one in a million. <laughs> and basically it was the same thing, right? I mean, Tran was there to... I think blow up the insectoid ship, provide cover, right? And right. I think in a lot of ways, he redeemed himself in the eyes of Archer. He redeemed his own sense of honor because he still stuck around. He knew that Archer still needed a wingman. He still needed someone out there watching his back. And, you know, they may have, you know, come, you know, butted heads in the past, but at the end of the day, they still share the same goal. Oh, my God. And I just. I just, I have to rename this episode now. I have to call him Shran Solo. <laughs> Captain of the Kamari oh, Falcon. <laughs> you know, you know the, you're, the crazy thing is, in These Are the Voyages, I'm jumping forward now, but These Are the Voyages, you know, he pretty much becomes like a smuggler. He pretty much goes into the underworld, right? Because he's thrown out from the, the Imperial Guard, doesn't have a ship anymore. He just pretty much just becomes like this... The mercenary shady captain? character, right? Like he totally could be a smuggler. Like he totally could just fly around in a, a YT thirteen hundred Corellian freighter. I could see that. That that's in my head canon now. All right, so Shran Solo it is. <laughs> um, but no, in, in Zero Hour, he he comes back because he needs to right this wrong in his head. He needs to make amends for what, not for what he did personally, but for how he left Archer in the lurch. And there was no bigger lurch than basically depriving Archer the ability to save humanity. And I think Shran came, came to realize that. He's like, wow, I understand that we have this beef with the Vulcans, but we really screwed this one up. You know, High Command or, you know, Andorian Imperial Guard. This isn't, this isn't the right thing to do. And 
that in and of itself, that turn, again, is another one of those cornerstones, those building blocks where we see a better relationship forge between Archer and Shran in season four. And I think that I can't state this more that three episodes in season four, Babel One, United, and the Anar, that arc is truly the, I think, is probably the best bridge from Enterprise to the original series. Because this is it. This is the reason why I brought us out of the decon chamber and into the conference room. Because right here, in these seats, in the conference room, in your headcanon, is where Shran, the Tellerite ambassador, Archer, and T'Pol start creating this ideal of a coalition of planets. So I can tell that you're excited to talk about this particular arc. So let's start with kind of Babel 1 and popcorn forward to the Anar and... Side note, the beginning of the possibility of seeing more of the Romulan War, the beginning of the Romulan War with the attack drones. So there's so much to go into, and let's just dive into it. Well, first, you see the Tellarites, and the Tellarites are not just these hooven with these, you know, just completely almost, how can they, I mean, they bring this up in, um, I think Christopher and Tyler bring this up in, a previous warp five episode, but how does anyone, how does anyone with that type of appendage use an L cars interface in the future? doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and clearly, you know, they're going to have smash screens. It doesn't make any sense, but they have, they've extrapolated in a way where you believe the Tellarites are this, this believable race that's familiar in a lot of ways, but it's, it has been updated in a modern sensibility. They have the, even the, their personality being argumentative is reinterpreted in, 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 a, in a different way that's still familiar, but still modern in its approach. And you just set you set the stage in terms of bringing these races together and adding that not, adding that different element of of tension. Right. So previously you had the tension between Vulcans and Dorians and humans. Now you add the Tellarites into the mix, and then you add the Romulans who. Prior to this, we haven't really seen since Minefield, and they're adding all of this in into this into the story. And at the heart of it, you have this relationship again with Archer and Shran. Shran has just been attacked; his ship essentially completely lost. His crew, just a, a small skeleton crew that survived, and he is out for blood again. And Archer is the one that has to intervene and really leverage all those personal moments that they've had in the past, all their experiences they've had in the past to really be able to reason with him. And the craziest thing is they still have to fight about it. You know, it, it, in an, in a next generation environment, you would have them really be, really be able to talk it through, negotiate and really understand that an alliance makes sense, that they should stop mistrusting each other, not, believe in the lies that the Romulans are portraying. But in this instance, although Archer is able to convince Shran, at least on a nominal level, uh, to begin trusting each other, they still have to fight each other. There's that great moment in in that conference room where he just, you know, he just says, murderer, right? You know, mm-hmm. and he still, although he understands the value of this alliance, the, the value of them teaming up, he still has to avenge and he still has to 
pay respect to his own customs. And I think so much of Shran is his own personal code of honor, his own belief in his in his people's way of doing things. And that's why I think Archer, he has such respect for Archer because he said, at least you respected our ways. Right. And I think the fact that Archer literally had to fight him, right? And I don't think that could have worked in any other setting where a fight still happened, although they pretty much agreed with each other, right? And the fight still had to occur. I mean, that's almost very Klingon-esque, don't you think? You know where they're trying to you know what this was obviously a fight to the duel the uh the fight with the uh, the ice uh cutters but it wasn't for first blood but it's very kind of like this this same kind of klingon heaviness of of fighting for honor now in babel one this is where i thought the the very first episode of this arc this is where shran is starting to come to terms with working actually negotiating for a better relationship with archer the kamari was destroyed his i mean that's one thing that was taken away from him and there was a ship that he served on for i don't know i'm not can't i'm not even sure how many years but it, it was his was it his first ship i don't know if it was his first ship it might have been his first command command yes yeah, but first i don't command. know if it's his first ship i feel like shran has pretty much lived in the Imperial Guard ever since he was a child. Like I feel like he was born and raised military, but I feel a lot of Endorans are probably in that same boat too. But I think it's very interesting how in this arc, he pretty much loses his entire standing, his entire position, his ship. He loses pretty much all of it right. in, this, in the course of these three episodes. Right, and there was this neat kind of um, reconciliation between Shran and Archer in, in Archer's ready room. Because he was talking about the Kamari and he was talking about this was my ship and this was my crew. I knew these people. I served with these people. I knew their families. Back in Andoria, you know, we are, this is how tight-knit we were as, a, as or, or are as a crew and as a species. And I think he sees how Archer is the same way about the NX-01. And there's this really nice line where he talked about, you know, maybe, you know, maybe they will continue to name our ships these same names in the future that just kind of tickles me you know because i'm not sure about for the kamari but for the enterprise it's true so he and archer start getting closer and closer and closer and then all of a sudden there's uh some there's an issue with the tellerite delegation uh there was obviously a huge miscommunication it led to distrust to distrust led to violence and then uh shran's love interest now his second command uh, Talus, she's injured. She becomes poisoned with phaser fire infection and eventually dies. And you're right. Well, he's literally stripped of everything. His command is essentially gone. His ship is gone. His lover is gone. What does he have left but honor and tradition? And Archer grants him that. Now, you're right. In the scene in the conference room where Shran wants to confront his lover's killer, is one of the best moments, I think, in Jeffrey Combs' career as Shran because, by and large, the actors in Enterprise and in a lot of Star Trek series, they act with a certain level of reserve, especially when it comes to the actors that are on the Federation because humanity is reserved in in certain ways, in certain, um, the way that they're just, their poise is. But the passion and the loss and the regret that he 
just conveys in that scene shows you he's ready to change. He has to make this change. But in order to do so, he has to be able to make sure that his traditions are being honored and that he has one last chance to salvage all of this loss, whether it's with his death or with the death of one of these Tellarite ambassadors that Archer intervenes in their favor. It's just really brilliant writing because it puts Archer in this position where he's like, I am ready to risk it all as you are to make sure that this coalition works. This is what we have to do in order to become this greater whole than the individual sum of our parts. And I I, I can gush over this particular arc because I see it as it is projected to Journey to Babel in the original series and how it's still tenuous. The relationship there, and this is eighty years afterwards, right? I think, you know, I think the crazy thing is in Journey to Babel, uh, the Corridans were still applying to join the Federation. They were still working to join the Federation, and yet in Enterprise, the Corridans were there, or the Cor, or the Corridians were there in Terra Prime or Demons in terms of the Coalition meeting. So I think it's so interesting that there are member species. That were, that were talking about joining the coalition of planets, but flash forward uh, 70, 100 years, they had actually not yet joined the UFP. And I think that's a really great uh, contrast where not every tra- not every transition is going to be smooth and not every planet will want to join the Federation even when it's formed. You know, and in kind of like encapsulating this arc, what I think was really important toward the end of Shran's progression in season four was it wasn't his it wasn't his aggression and his ability as a commander that salvaged what happened with the Anar and how the Anar needed to be used in order to counter the effects of, of the Romulan drone that was being powered and controlled by the other Anar. It was his compassion and his love for Jamal and his encouragement in order for her to complete what they needed from her involvement, from her being able to connect with her brother. And that was a turn that in some ways was really, you got to see Shran's true intentions, his true self, because I think the Imperial Guard demanded a certain behavior and code of conduct from him but in the end it's it's this regret that he had from not being able to protect Talus that he needed to atone for that with Jamal and I just thought that was really a great range of acting that Jeffrey Combs brought us in these three episodes it's it's by far I think in the fourth season my favorite arc just in terms of what it means to the overall canon of Star Trek and how the writers... Now, you're going to have to follow me around the room on this one. How the writers knew that the Romulans were paranoid of this coalition forming. So they sent these drones to try and create this and foster this distrust amongst all of these different races. But what happened was that because it affected Shran and Shran had this relationship with Archer, they started to form this relationship and Archer was able to intercede on Shran's behalf in order to stop him from murdering the Tellarites, in order to put all of that energy towards the negotiations to show Shran a different way. 
and then forge the beginning of the the coalition. So it's kind of like the Romulans. It was almost self defeating, and it's it's ironic that they didn't see you know they didn't actually see that happen. What they did was they they pushed Shran into this direction where probably even even he didn't even know that he was going to go, like mentally, emotionally, spiritually, you know, and. I don't know. It's just, I'm not sure if I, I'm the only one who sees it that deeply or if I just watch these episodes too much. But did you see that when you, you know, when you watch review these episodes? Oh, absolutely. It, it totally is self-defeating for the Romulans. And I feel, I feel that, I feel like with the Romulans, they're, they always overthink themselves. They literally craft this elaborate, complicated, convoluted plan that somehow just completely falls apart instantly with like one thing, when one thing goes wrong, or it'll just completely catastrophically backfire in the exact opposite way. I feel like a lot of, you know, Sela's plans, a lot of the Romulan plans to clone Picard, to uh, to to fund the Duras, and all this, like all these really convoluted plans that actually just don't work. Remember that plan in Unification? We're going to land, we're going we're gonna to fake... Uh, a hologram transmission of Ambassador Spock, and we'll secretly land uh, troops on oh, right, Falcon. Right. Yeah. But then, as soon as we're discovered, we're just going to blow up our ships real fast. It's just, it's like so complicated, and yet it falls apart so quickly. It's almost, it, it's almost like, are these just, are they, are we supposed to take these Romulans seriously? Sometimes it almost seems their plans don't really work out. And I think in this particular case. It, although it, it kind of falls into that trope, in my opinion, it still works really well in terms of setting up the foundation for the different races, the Andorians, the Tellarites, the humans, the Vulcans, to begin to cooperate, while at the same time beginning to foreshadow the Romulans as his threat. The drone ship was brilliant in terms of they still keep that TOS um, rule, if you will, of not being able to see the Vulcans until later on in Balance of Terror. Right. Uh, it also allows them to begin ramping up the threat of the Romulans to potentially, if there was a season five, a season six, an Earth Romulan war. Uh, I think this is going to be a perfect topic for another episode of Warp 5, talking about what exactly is a coalition of planets and how does the coalition of planets differ from the eventual United Federation of Planets? Is there a difference? What is the difference? There's a lot of good theories out there in terms of the coalition is not a defense pact in the same way that the Federation was. So in reality, although the coalition was formed sometime after the Babel arc, by the time Earth fights its war with the Romulans, it's really Earth fighting the Romulans by themselves because the coalition itself isn't a mutual defense pact. They literally have to fight that fight on their own. And I think that's a really interesting extrapolation of what we see on screen. But you're right, Norman, I agree with you. Uh, the Babel arc is really the highlights of season four, no question for me, but it's also really the highlight for me for the series as a whole. It's definitely in the top three or four overall storylines that I think Enterprise has told just because it just pays off so many things. And it pays off Shran, right? Someone right. we saw in the first season clearly has a huge role in the fourth season and then they're tying it into something that fans have wanted to see for so long and you can see from season to season to season the progression that jeffrey combs as shran and his involvement of 
just being utilized more as a character. Season two was really light. There was only one episode. And so it was, but it was a great episode though. Oh, I absolutely. It's really good. Yeah, absolutely. And I would think that they were able, they would have been able to insert him at least into one more episode, but it's clear to state that in season four, Shran has had more of an influence in terms of what they wanted him to do as a character and the right. He's in Kirshara. He's in that trilogy where he's torturing Saval, which is also a really great scene too. That's true. That's true. I and forgot. I mean, it, we overshadowed Kirshara to talk about the Babel conference, but you're right. There's that was a facet of Shran's personality that we haven't talked about yet. And again, he was doing it, you know, under the guise and under the order of being an Imperial guard. And I, I honestly think that in that episode when he kept doing it, I don't think that he had any real true ill will against Saval, at least not anymore. You know, it's he wanted to break a Vulcan, yes, and he wanted to do it because this was his order, this was his job. But I do think, though, in the subtleties of his performance in that episode, that this was a Shran that's starting to change. You know, this mm-hmm. wasn't this wasn't the Shran of the Andorian incident that would have. You know, he would have wringed his hands and cracked his knuckles and kind of gotten really just just ready, licking his chops, waiting to get to Saval. I think that this was um, this was a, an ends justifies the means, but not really kind of issue for him. Yeah. Saval never breaks, which is the, the, the crazy thing, you know, through that entire segment. He essentially says, you know, I will I will tear the antenna from your head. Right. I, I will not break. <laughs> and, you know, this is. This is not canon, obviously, but, you know, you and me are both huge Exnar fans. But in Prelude to Exnar, Saval clearly references Shran when he says, a former Andorian acquaintance of mine mm-hmm. says, don't push the pinks into the thin ice. You could see that there's an extrapolation from what we see in the Kirshar trilogy in terms of that, I think, mutual respect. But they're they're both doing what they need to do because they're professionals, right? This right. is not personal. You can just see, Sean, this is not personal. I don't want to do this to you, but I have to. Right. You could just see that those those seeds of that type of respect clearly translate over to Prelude to Axnar in terms of you could you could see Soval and Shran actually becoming friends and colleagues years after the fact. Once the Federation has formed, they can understand that you know, we've had our uh, we've had our fights in the past. We've had our our confrontations, but there's a, a level of mutual admiration and respect there that you see in Prelude, which I think is really fantastic. But you see it start in Kirshara, and that's we're that's something I would love to talk about at length, kind of Shran and his involvement in the you know the the un scripted season five. I mean, Manny Cotto said that he would have been a permanent credited cast member. Whether it's or not like Christopher would... Jones saying it's Manny Cotto's magic bag magic of bag. hindsight. That's right. Everything of just, yeah, we would have done this. We would have done the refit. We would have, we would have been on the, Shran would have been on the bridge. It would have just been, I mean, I think it's really fun to, to speculate, but I think it's really fun. Like, oh man, there were just so many ideas that they were just, ready and and ready and willing to go in season five it's almost it is like magical hindsight and i know that shran is heavily involved in the novels the enterprise novels so that uh when when we actually get a chance to focus on the novels and not step on the toes of literary treks too much because i know that our fans out there 
on the Babel conference and a lot of our listeners have actually texted me or have gotten in touch with me on Facebook and on Twitter asking us, when will you be diving into, you know, referencing the novels? And again, that's one of those, I'd like to have um, Dan and, and Matthew, uh, the hosts for Literary Treks on here to talk about that because there is Buffy the Vampire Slayer has a quote unquote season eight. And that season eight was done in comic book form. And I do believe that season five for all intents and purposes was for enterprise was done in novel form. You have the rise of the Federation. You have the good that men do. Um, you have Kobayashi Maru. Uh, there are a handful of novels that from what I understand are fill in the gaps. And I know that Shran has been involved in a lot of those uh, in, in some form or another. So I think we'd actually dedicate an entire episode just to speculate what Shran would have become. Because, yes, he he was starting to really integrate himself, not only inside the show, you know, on screen with the crew, but also in the hearts and the minds of the fans. We wanted, who doesn't want to see more Jeffrey Combs involved? As a matter of fact, and this is going into my final thoughts, I think that Shran, Jeffrey Combs, is the Garrick for Enterprise because I can't take my eyes off him when he's on screen and I can only wish he had more time and lament the fact that we never got a chance to see him in 5, 6, and 7 if Enterprise would have gone all those seasons. It's the same way with Garrick. I'm not, I'm not a Deep Space Niner by and large. I do love the show. I'll watch it when it comes on, but I will definitely watch it if Garrick is on especially when he brings the kind of game that he does like in the pale moonlight, you know, the, the, and that's, that's the kind of his relationship with Archer has that same ferocity and that same spirit with Cisco that Archer and Shran have. So it, it's just this, it's adversarial and friendly at the same time, because I think they have the greatest respect for their abilities and what they can bring to the situation. Absolutely. I think Shran and Garrick represent Star Trek's ideal anti-hero in terms of they're not villains, but they're clearly not the heroes that we know and love. But that's why we love them so much because they provide such a useful foil. With that said, Shran and Garrick are different types of anti-heroes. I could see a scenario where Shran, at some point down the road, dons a Starfleet uniform in the New Federation. I will never see Garrick become part of the Federation or don a Starfleet uniform. And the relationship with Shran and Archer is different than the relationship between Garrick and Disco, but they're similar in a lot of ways too, but they're also different. But in a lot of ways, they're very similar because they're supporting characters that have such an outsized impact and influence on the episodes that they're in. They're actually not in very many. Shran's maybe at, Shran's in 10 episodes. Yep. of Enterprise. Yep. I haven't counted for Garrick, but it's a handful, maybe you know, 20 episodes tops out of the entire seven season run. But you remember Garrick so much just because of just the impact that he has in the stories that he's in. Mm -hmm. And that's a very good point, uh, Norm, that you brought up. And you know, I think it'd been really interesting to see in season five a dynamic of Shran and Archer that we see them in in previous seasons, they're equals, right? So if Manny Cotto really wanted to bring Shran on the NX-01, is he really going to have to answer to Archer? How does that dynamic work if they're both equals, right? 
right? If they if they were both captains and they were both prideful men, clearly Shran has lost a lot of 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 his pride. He lost to Archer. He has his antenna cut off, right? So how does that play into if he does join the Annex One? Does he come on as an advisor? as part of uh, the Imperial Guard, but I thought he lost his position. So what role does he play? Just does he don a Starfleet uniform? Does he, is he kind of like T'Pol in season three where she had to resign her commission from the Vulcans and just kind of be this provisional member of the crew? I don't know, but it would have added some interesting tension, especially her, uh, him playing off of T'Pol. And it's something that would be a really interesting dynamic because they're coming in as as equals. But if he was on board the ship, clearly Archer is the captain and master of his ship. So how would that dynamic work? And it's just really fascinating to to speculate on. Well, in doing the math, the the Enterprise was out there for ten years before Archer was going to have the NXO one decommissioned. It was a ten year voyage. Now this was mentioned in in these are the voyages. So. We've seen. If you read the books, these are the voyages kind of gets retconned in a really interesting way, but we'll true. get to that. This is true. So, from in 2151 to uh, maybe 2156, that would have been five years. So, we were in 2154 during, um, you know, in the fourth season. And if we went, now follow me on this one. And at the end of These Are the Voyages, it was 10 years, so it was 2161. When they mentioned Shran and they say that Shran has surfaced, they said that he was gone. He disappeared for three years. You know, so that would have been 2158. 2151 to 2158 would have been seven years, a seven-year season. So at the end of the seventh season, Shran would have disappeared and would whoosh what happened to him. Wouldn't that have been a great cliffhanger to the end of that character? And then all of a sudden, we would have him in These Are the Voyages 10 years, you know, well, three years later, 10 years since the start of the voyage in 2151. And then now he's at this, the end of his rope. We would have been able to see kind of where he probably just didn't sit well with taking orders from Archer or becoming part of the Federation's organization, military structure. And it just wasn't what he thought it was going to be. So maybe he resigned his commission, from not just from Starfleet and the Imperial Order, but just from serving this coalition of planets. Maybe it just, that would have been an interesting turn for him because, yes, he was pivotal to the foundation of it, but maybe it wasn't going in the direction that he wanted. It's always neat to see a character kind of like um, fall from grace that way, lose the luster of, of his original intent and ideal. And I think that Jeffrey Combs is a strong enough actor to be able to pull that off because he does have that capacity to to wear it outward, that, that emotion outwardly and to express it outwardly. And I could just see him just throw down a uniform or throw down a medal or something and say, like, this isn't what I signed on for, pink skin. You know? <laughs> I could just see him. Can you just imagine him going toe-to-toe with the Orion Syndicate or just going into that criminal underbelly that you you see in in bound and in other episodes like shran is the perfect he's that perfect anti-hero he has that personality where he can navigate those worlds and i think that's probably the most likely scenario in which if there was a season five and beyond that you see shran is this kind of this rogue that swoops in and kind of tags along but does his own thing but he provides that 
that type of relationship with Archer where he can get things done that normally Starfleet channels couldn't get done or he gives Archer some tips and hints of what he's been hearing uh, along the criminal grapevine or all see, these now you're kind of veering towards what Garrick is or was for Cisco. Yeah, ex- exactly, right? It, it, you know, who who was disgraced from the Obsidian Order, Shran is disgraced from the Imperial Guard. I mean, we need a right season 5 right now essentially is what you're saying, Norm. But the so. tool is the great <laughs> thing is is that he would have been the tool that allowed Archer to keep his hands clean, to keep this federation going. Because that's what Garrick was in a sense and and we all know this in from in the Pale Moonlight was that you needed me because you didn't want to get your hands dirty. But at the same time, though, we served each other's needs. You did something for me. I did something for you. The thing is, is that your morality doesn't like it. You know, and that's what sh- that's Shran would throw that totally in Archer's face. It's like, you know, you, you, you want to do these things that are morally questionable. And you did out there in the Zindi. I will guarantee and I will grant you that. But now, because the spotlight is on you trying to keep this coalition together, you can't afford to be seen doing what you need me to do, right? And maybe that's not what he wanted. Maybe that's not what he wanted for himself, but the thing is that Archer kind of just maneuvered him in that in that capacity. Who knows? But that's the great thing about this character. He had, he has this great potential. And I always say this about the characters we talk about and we care for so much. We talked about it with Crewman Cutler before. They just, ah, seasons five, six, and seven, we just didn't get it, and it could have been great. It was going in a great direction at the end of season four, and it's also fun to speculate because you don't know the writers could have come up with something just as brilliant in a completely different way. So, I got two words for you, Norm. Yo. Section 31. I just forgot everything that I was saying for the last hour. What were we talking about? <laughs> exactly. That's exactly I can't, right. Will? Can you imagine them just recruiting him? That, I can. That live would with be it. insane, insanely awesome. Computer, erase that entire log <laughs> and transmission. Erase his so. entire podcast. Oh gosh, <laughs> that would be awful. Actually, that'd be very awful. Yeah, actually, with one false click of a button, that very well could happen. But we're not going to let that happen. So, I think we've gotten out, we've expressed our love for Shran, and I think that the fans will understand if they don't completely 100% agree with us that Shran was just this amazing character. He deserves all of the accolades. Now, when I say Shran, I will also pair him with his alter ego, that is Jeffrey Combs. They both deserve all of our fan adulation because they just brought so much to the game with so little time and pound for pound, minute for minute, second for second on screen. It's just a joy to see Shran and to see Jeffrey Combs involved with Star Trek because I just couldn't even imagine the character without him. Could you? I don't. In the same way, to to go back to your Garrick analogy, in the same way that I can't see Garrick played by anyone else than Andrew Robinson. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a testament to the type of actor he is. And the thing is, he has been known for other Star Trek roles. So in a way, it's that much more impressive because he's had other fantastic roles he's played on Star Trek that fans love him for but the fact that he could do an even better in my opinion better character but in a completely different way and I love Wei Yun Wei Yun is one of my favorite characters in Deep Space Nine and the fact that in my mind after seeing Enterprise Shran really eclipsed that in a in a different unique way 
just speaks volumes about Jeffrey Combs as an actor. I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. Well, it's been just it's just been amazing talking about this force of nature and enterprise that's Jeffrey Combs as Shran here in the conference room. But this isn't the only topic we've been talking about here on the network on Trek FM this past week. So here's a quick look at some other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. I really, really, really hope that if they do that, they make Chang the villain because, you know, Captain Chang instead of General Chang or whatever, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, that just seems like the perfect way to go. Earl Grey. All right, Riker, we're promoting you to Captain. I mean, you, uh, you killed the last Captain. We usually don't reward that. That's usually not a policy, but in this case... Well, well, to be fair, he had spent some time on a Klingon ship. The Orb. But the Federation, and Bajor as a member of the Federation, would be helping rebuild Cardassia. And I could see like very much the relationship between the U.S. and Japan today. I could see the Federation and Cardassia having that kind of relationship moving forward. To the journey! Jimmy has a very distinct pain noise. Yeah, she you know kind what I'm of talking does. about? It sounds sort of like she's suffocating. Yeah, it sounds like she's suffocating and sometimes, and I'm going to keep it clean, not always in pain. The Ready Room. He is the best cosplayer ever because he's so buried himself in his part that we have no idea who this guy is outside of the impersonation of Tuvok. Exactly. He's the Christian Bale of the Delta Quadrant. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. If I'm not mistaken, in any upcoming episode of Next Generation, we don't see full-grown golden retrievers running around the decks of the Enterprise. And I'm also a little worried that Captain Picard has never played with puppies. Commentary, Trek stars. But you'd rather see Red in charge than him. Oh, yeah, totally. (laughs) Because you really want porn stash to go down. Yes, yes, you do. And that sentence out of context sounds really strange. Literary Treks. As great as Picard is and his Picard maneuver, uh, I don't think Picard straightening his shirt is going to help him uh, <laughs> when he's going up against the Riker maneuver. Fair enough, yeah. So. Axonar, the official podcast. The change that we've made, the change to the nacelles and uh, several other aspects of these ships to make them distinct and, and not the same ships as uh, in, in Star Trek 2009. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit that subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes. Now, if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab that RSS link as well. Now, Will, I know that you're stuck in Endorian winter right now, but just in case people want to send some positive, warm vibes your way, please let everyone on the network know how they can find you across subspace and the interwebs. Well, you can find me on Twitter at at Will underscore Win. It's spelled N-G-U-Y-E-N. And of course, I'm in the Babel Conference, which is Trek FM's dedicated Facebook listener group. And I'm also the content coordinator for the network. So if you have any ideas on different topics that we should cover that we haven't covered, feel free to drop me a line. And I'm an associate producer of The Orb, 
Earl Grey, and Literary Treks. And you were involved in the uh, in Trek FM before you came on as a co-host for this show or guest of this show. And you did so by getting involved with Patreon, was it not? That's right. Um, so Patreon is a wonderful way t- uh, towards really helping us create content and really helping us continue to bring great Trek talk to every one of you every week. And, you know, it costs a lot in terms of manpower and in terms of um, financial resources to, to host a network and to, to host all these episodes. So would, uh, please help us out if you can uh, at Patreon, become a patron, but you can help us support, uh, you can help support the network in lots of other ways by telling your friends and family and just spreading the word too. So we've always appreciated the support that you guys have given to all of us, but um, Patreon is, is an excellent way of, of taking that to the next level. Absolutely. And that's how I got started uh, with the network. You know, I started listening and then I got involved with Patreon because Patreon really does keep all of our shows coming to you each week. Uh, when you become a member, you can help us out financially and start getting uh, some uh, support in that way because this is a fan run and fan funded endeavor. So if you want to get involved that way, you can visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash trekfm. You'll find our current financial goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks that we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join our team. Again, you can find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. And just as an example, I'd like to say thank you to our associate producer for Warp 5, Floyd Dorsey. Uh, Thanks, Floyd, for all of your support on the network. And you can find him on the Babel Conference, Trek FM's dedicated Facebook listeners page. Again, I started out um, with Trek FM as being a supporter through Patreon, and it gave me a a great exposure to all of the uh, different levels of contribution that I wanted to be involved with. So I can't even thank patreon.com and the service enough for helping me get involved with the network now if you would like to get in touch with us here at trek fm you can always find us on trek fm slash content and look in the sidebar on the show page you can go to speakpipe.com slash trek fm you can also contact us through twitter at trek fm facebook facebook.com slash trek fm and as i mentioned earlier the babel conference that's the dedicated facebook listeners page type the babel conference b-a-b-e-l into the search field on facebook or go to our website at Trek FM and click Discussion on the menu bar. Now, before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps us bring Warp 5 and all of our shows to you each week. And our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have time for. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial just to see how great Audible is. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank Audible for supporting Wart 5 and the network. And don't forget to check out Enterprise in Space, a project of the nonprofit National Space Society that will design and launch an 8-foot orbiter and return the craft to Earth. The NSS Enterprise Orbiter will carry more than 100 student-designed science experiments into space, and you can help make that happen. Visit enterpriseinspace.org to find out more and to get your seat on the mission. Now, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can always find me here on the network or on the Babel Conference. You can also find me on Twitter at Norman Lau, that's N-O-R-M-A-N-L-A-O. And you all know that I'm a proud supporter of Alec Peters and the Axonar Project. You can find me on the dedicated Axonar fan group page on Facebook. 
And as I mentioned before, I'm a proud sponsor of Trek FM through Patreon.com. And I'm an associate producer of four shows here on the network, Warp 5, The Orb, The 602 Club, and Axanar, the official Axanar podcast. So thanks everyone for listening and join us again next time here in the conference room for another episode of Warp 5. <laughs>